0: When uh, the spirit was given at Pentecost, the word was heard in many languages all at once that expanded the family of God to a people that included many different peoples of many different cultures and many different backgrounds. And so I first, this week in particular, just want to acknowledge that tomorrow is Indigenous People's Day a day when uh, we recognize the lives and cultures of the First Peoples of North America and Alaska, and also a day when we lament uh, the colonization and mistreatment of many of those peoples. The land of Oregon, uh, the land that we now occupy, was originally the home to many vibrant and native tribes and so as inhabitants of this land who have been filled with the Holy Spirit who makes many peoples one family it's important as we gather to worship and move toward tomorrow that we both celebrate the cultures represented by our brothers and sisters and secondly that we grieve with them for the evil and injustice that they have endured. Secondly Uh, because when the Spirit was given, the Word was heard in many languages. We will continue to hear the Word in multiple languages that are represented from right here within this local church family each and every week during this practice. So uh, I'm going to invite Mimi, who's going to come now and read our teaching text for today. If you would stand for the reading of the scripture.
1: Salam and good morning. My name is Hamrawit, but most call me Mimi. Um, I listened to Bridgetown teachings for a while beca- before calling this my home church uh, over five years ago, around the same time that I joined a Bridgetown community group. Um, also recently a part of the racial justice subcommittee for women. Um, I've been raised and spent most of my life in the United States, but my family is originally from Tigray, and in Tigray we speak Tigrinya, so I'll be reading for us in Tigrinya. Um, through spending a couple of years in the capital of Ethiopia, I learned how to speak Amharic, which is one of the more commonly spoken languages there. So we'll read, or I'll read in Tigrinya and then Amharic, but first let's read together in English. So John 14, 25 to, to 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you the things that All things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. ن سکللو کم حرکوم زنگرکوکوم زبالوئن Salam یو سلام یه حدکالکوم سلامی ون یه بکو مال لکو اتی آنا زه بکو مال لکو عالم برن آب This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Can you have a seat? What is the first thing you did when you woke up this morning? I'm talking before coffee, before brushing your teeth. Likely before you even got out of bed, what's the first thing that you did? You reached for your phone. That's the most common answer anyway. That's the first move for most people today. Uh, But that instinctive reach to check your notifications first thing in the morning, it's actually a very new phenomenon. So I want to begin today, not in present day, but by taking you back to a far and away distant, mostly forgotten place called the 90s. (laughs) What a time. Do you remember this place? The 90s were an era when you were constantly forced into situations where your mind was idle and undistracted. You were waiting in line with no tiny screen, just alone with your thoughts. You walked down the street looking up at the direction that you were going and not down at your device. You rode the bus. You waited for a friend at a cafe. Try to imagine that people once lived this way. You waited for a friend just waiting for that friend, <laughs> just <laughs> idly hoping that they would show up sometime soon with nothing to distract yourself with. We don't do that anymore. Uh, smartphones have eliminated the idle undistracted mind from the Western world. They've introduced us to this new way to start a day where a crowd of faceless strangers shapes our emotions first thing. Now you can wake up to FOMO at what you missed out on the night before, as so much information from so many news sources can plunge into your consciousness first thing, that you can't possibly process it, much less act on it. Or it's just that mild panic that now intrudes on your weekend when you see that email from your boss about Monday morning's presentation. So our phones have made it possible for us to be connected like never before. Amazing. And our phones have made it possible for your boss to crawl into the sheets with you on a Sunday morning. Less amazing. So what kind of effect is all that connectivity having on us? Well, psychologists are seeing a really troubling trend, particularly for today's generation of young adults. Since the year, or I'm sorry, until the year 2012, the term anxiety was very rarely used in the world of mental health. But since that year, there's been a massive spike in diagnosed cases of anxiety related to disorders, particularly among people born after 1995. That is the first generation of people who have grown up without conscious memory of a world before the internet was in our pockets. Jean Twinge, who's a psychology professor at SDSU, wrote a piece for The Atlantic, which traced this spike in anxiety. She concludes, Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen, that's her term for people born after 1995, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Benoit Denisé-Lewis did his own digging and then wrote a piece for the New York Times that concludes that the only sociological factor to explain the modern anxiety crisis is the parallel spike in people carrying around a smartphone. The use of social media and smartphones look culpable for the increase in teen mental health issues. It's enough for an arrest, and if we get more data, it might be enough for a conviction. A number of writers have recently compared today's app developers to big tobacco and ad agencies in the 60s, conspiring together in something that they know is killing the public. One media personality said, let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking, but tobacco just wanted your lungs, the app store wants your soul. If you work in tech, I'm so glad that you're here today. (laughs) Don't kill the messenger is the thumb swipe that has become subconscious with your morning routine, killing you slowly. Now, I'm not big on conspiracy, and I personally think that sounds like an awful lot to put on the shoulders of Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. So, why don't we just set that aside for a moment, and we will return to it later. We are in a practice right now titled Demonstrating the Gospel, and it is all about the Holy Spirit. Now, tragically, in the modern church, the Holy Spirit has become a familiar stranger, and so we are beginning with a three-part reintroduction to the person of the Spirit. The Scripture introduces us to the Holy Spirit primarily through metaphor. Three of the most common are water, breath, and dove. And so each Sunday, we're following a similar pattern. We are starting with that conversation Jesus had with the 12 on the final night of his life, when he said, essentially, I'm going away, but I'm sending you my spirit, and my indwelling presence is a significant upgrade to my physical, embodied presence with you right now. And from there, we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning, and we're gonna trace a metaphor through the whole of the Bible to try to figure out what made that ludicrous claim actually seem logical in the imagination of Jesus, And as we trace this metaphor, we'll also work our way through four movements. They're the same every week. The Holy Spirit with the Father, the Holy Spirit in the Son, the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit through us. Last week we began with water, today we come to breath. So let's begin the Spirit with the Father. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin on page 1 of the story. Actually, page one, verse one of the story. So I'll begin reading from Genesis chapter one, verse one. If you would, find your way with me there. "'In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters.'" Now, the Holy Spirit is not a New Age mystical teaching that was introduced sometime after Jesus. The Spirit is present at creation, named in the opening sentence. In Hebrew, the original language of Genesis, it reads, and the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. Now, Ruach is a Hebrew term that can be equally translated into English as either spirit or breath, So the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, an equally valid way to translate that would be, and the breath of God was hovering over the waters. Maybe with just a little bit of imagination, you could say something like, God was breathing on the unformed chaos. So the Spirit is God's breath. Now what happens when the the breath of God meets unformed substance? Creation happens. God speaks creation into being. Cosmos, land, sea, vegetation, animal life, All of it comes from God's voice, from his breath. Now, it's important to note here that God the Father creates through the Holy Spirit. When God speaks, his breath or his spirit goes out and then something happens. Now, just turn the page with me to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So last of all, God creates people, and something unique happens when he creates people. He puts his breath into them, setting them apart from every other created thing. Why? Why would God give his breath or his spirit to people to go on creating? See, the first thing that we learn about God on page one of the story is that God is creative. Then He gives His creativity to us when He gives us His Spirit. The first biblical command is to do what? To be fruitful and multiply, to create, rule over creation, work these raw materials into an ecosystem. That's the second command. Go on creating. Now then, of course, there's that whole bit about the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. People are deceived. They reach for greater freedom that actually turns out to be imprisonment, and we call that the fall. Now, I'd love for you to turn ahead to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a good bit ahead in the story. I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. But to summarize the space between, after the opening scene, the story rolls on, and we discover this, that God is stubborn that he will not go down without a fight. And so he, the betrayed, becomes the pursuer, fighting for the hearts of his people. That's you and me. Now what is God's strategy for redemption? He keeps on speaking. God recreates in the same way that he created at first, through his breath or his spirit. That's why throughout the Old Testament, God selected certain people and he communicated with them directly in a way that was not common. We call those people prophets. God breathed his spirit into a prophet just as he did at creation. He refilled the lungs of a particular person at a particular time for a particular purpose, but it's not for everyone. Not yet, anyway. There's a telling moment in the story in Numbers 11 where Moses says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. What does he mean? Does he mean that he wished that everyone knew the future? No. Prophets are not Christian psychics. Old Testament prophecy is not about winning lotto numbers. It's about Jesus. It's a pointing ahead to the climactic moment in recreation when God himself will become embodied like one of us. New Testament prophecy is about Jesus. It's a the revelation, not only in general, but very personally of who he is and how he lived and what it means for us now. Prophecy is always about Jesus. It's not about telling the future. So Moses realizes that his experience of God's nearness, God's person, presence, and power, his spirit, it's the exception, not the rule. The very best that he's experiencing of the life of God, others aren't experiencing with him. It's incomplete. Completion is when the spirit is speaking to and through everyone in a community, So the Hebrew word ruach continues to show up as the story builds, a recurring promise to recreate with God's divine breath, just like he did at first, to enter into a fallen world and breathe on it again. That's the theme of Job. It's within the Psalms. It's in the book of Isaiah, and it's in Zechariah. But my favorite comes from another vision from our old pal Zeke. So this is Ezekiel chapter 37 this time. I'm going to read in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. The bones were very dry. Now let's pause for just a second because Ezekiel's seeing a vision again. This vision was of a valley full of bones human bones, dry, lifeless, long dead human bones. And he's walking around among them. And that's when God poses a question to him. We'll continue reading. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. From the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. There it is again and again and again in the vision, ruach, breath. Spirit. Ezekiel, breathe into these dry bones and they'll come alive again. It's a promise. It's a reenactment of Genesis when God breathed into Adam's lungs and he came alive. I'm going to send my spirit to my people again, just like I did at first. The creator who breathed life into the dust, making people filled with his spirit, is also the recreator who breathed life into the lifeless, refilling fallen people with his spirit. That's the promise. And that vision becomes real in the person of Jesus. So let's jump ahead now to Mark chapter 1. And this brings us to the Spirit in the Son. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. So Jesus shows up and he begins teaching. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Now, that sentiment gets repeated in town after town as Jesus travels about preaching in various synagogues throughout Israel. The English word translated here as authority is the Greek exousia. Can you say that with me? Exousia. Nailed it. Uh, it. It means the power or the ability to act. So when this Hebrew audience noticed that Jesus spoke with authority, what they meant was that his speech seems linked to the action of God. See, God's speech and God's action are inseparable. They're one and the same. We've been saying this again and again, that God only speaks because he wants to act. God says, let there be light, and bam, there's light. Jesus speaks like that too. He says it, and his voice is inseparably joined to God's action. That's what they're saying about his teaching when they say that it has authority. See, the first thing that people notice about Jesus, the thing that set him apart from every other rabbi, was his breath. It's not just the words he speaks, it's that when he says the words, they create. That should sound familiar. He's talking just like everybody else, but his talk creates where everyone else's is just noise. When Jesus forgives, people receive forgiveness. When Jesus says, stand up and walk, people lame from birth actually stand up and walk. When Jesus says, be open to the mouth of the mute or the ears of the deaf or the eyes of the blind, they are opened. And when Jesus says, come out of him, you evil spirit, even the supernatural powers of darkness obey his authority. When Jesus kneels down in front of a woman caught in adultery and says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I go and sin no more. A woman who by law was bound to the death penalty walks away freer than she's ever been. And most on the nose for us at the moment, when Jesus stands outside of the tomb of his dead friend who's filled with dry bones named Lazarus and and says, Lazarus, come out, his empty body is refilled with the breath of God and he walks out of his own tomb. The vision of Ezekiel has come alive in Jesus. But what started in Jesus doesn't end in Jesus. This brings us to our final movement, The Spirit Fills Us. So if you would turn with me ahead to John chapter 20. Now, the final place we're going to land today, or one of the final places, the scene is resurrection evening. Jesus' first appearance to his disciples since he pushed back his own gravestone. This is dinnertime on the original Easter Sunday. And Jesus appears to his disciples and says this in John 20, verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Here's my breath for your lungs, my spirit for your dry bones. Now jump ahead to Acts chapter 2. This really is the last place. What Jesus promised in John 20 was given in Acts 2. He told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. And then at the perfect time, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus showed us through his teaching, he then promised in John 20, was then finally given as a gift in Acts 2. I'll begin reading in verse 1. and supernatural foreign languages. It just got weird, right? And I will admit, as an isolated incident, this is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. So what do we make of this? I mean, in the context of a, as an isolated incident, it's crazy. But in the context of the larger story, it makes perfect sense. You see, Jesus promised them his breath. So they are filled with the Ruach, with the divine breath, with the Holy Spirit, and instinctively they start speaking words that create. Just like uh, God did in Genesis, just like Ezekiel and the other prophets promised, just like Jesus did, and now it's for ordinary people like you and me. Speak words that create. They open their mouths and words that uh, spoken are then heard in the ears of the crowd in their native languages so that they can say yes and receive the invitation. And they become a community like one the world has never seen before that includes various people groups and cultures and backgrounds and languages, all forming one family. Under God the Father. Their speech is in connection to God's action. That day, the Lord added to their number many who were being saved. They speak and God acts. It's the rebirth of the world that God created, the one that He was too stubborn and too loving to give up on. Now, don't miss this because the story is coming together here. In Genesis, the world was born when the breath of the creative God filled the empty lungs of people and they started creating. In Acts, the world is reborn when the breath of the creative God fills the empty lungs of people and they go about creating. That means that Ezekiel's vision is not an isolated incident for a special prophet at a special time. It's for everyone. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is not for elites. It's for everybody. So they tell the gospel story and people's lives change. Walls between people groups fall down. Forgiveness heals and a new community is born. This community begins to pray and, um, with the authority of Jesus and then doors are open and people are redeemed and diseases are healed. They speak a word of knowledge and kings fall to their knees. They offer a word of encouragement and the insecure suddenly become courageous and sometimes they get it wrong. And they continue to wrestle with sin. And they go through highs and lows. They're the recipients of supernatural miracles and ordinary conflicts. Because we are talking here about the Spirit of God filling ordinary people. That means that both realities are then mingling together within individuals and in communities. They've got the same Spirit Jesus has, empowering them on the same mission. There's something different about the way he speaks, it's like he's got authority. And then all of a sudden, that's not just for one renegade rabbi from Nazareth anymore. It's for all of them. All of them receive the Spirit. All of us, anyone who wants it, anyone who says yes to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then receives the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our final place, the Spirit through us. You see, what started on the pages of Acts, it doesn't end on the pages of Acts. The main character that's holding the whole plot together, the Holy Spirit, hasn't gone anywhere. The divine breath that was in the lungs of the early church is within us. A really close friend of mine, a fellow pastor, was on a trip to speak in another church. And the evening before he was meant to preach, there was a prayer meeting for the church staff and their respective spouses and significant others. And he had brought a small team of volunteers from his own church with him on this trip. One of those guys that he brought along was Greek. And as they're praying, the Greek guy has this strange word that keeps coming up into his mind, and he thinks it's for the wife of one of these pastors who he's never met before. And the word is skadula. Now, skadula is a Greek Greek slur for human excrement. It is the Greek version of a four-letter English curse word beginning with S, and that is as specific as I can get about the lexicon in this setting. So he's having a, a silent argument with himself, going, no way, God. Well, what's wrong with me? How filthy is my mind? We're in a prayer meeting here. Get it together. And then my buddy, the leader of the group, looks at him and says, I've got this really strong sense that you have a word for this woman. <laughs> this is a true story. And, and the, Greek, the Greek dude is pretty new to all this prophetic stuff, and his pastor just put him on the spot. And so he's sitting there thinking, okay, if she doesn't speak Greek, this is going to make no sense at all. And if she does speak Greek, it's even worse, because then it gets significantly offensive. And he pauses, unsure of what to do, and he can't really come up with anything that sounds like generally spiritual in that moment. And so he just goes for it and says, okay, sure. I think God might want to tell you that you're not a skedula." And when he says that, she just begins weeping hysterically. Now, at this point in the story, there's a couple of details that I need to fill you in on. The first one is this, that when the Spirit is speaking to a person, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's accompanied by a great amount of emotion. And that's all right. It actually makes a whole lot of sense, because Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a counselor. So I just want you to think about a a visit to a human counselor's office. There's typically a lot of conversation, and the counselor is digging around, they're asking questions, trying to open up space where the heart can find its voice. And then there's that one question where the counselor puts her finger on something, and you just fall apart. There's tears, or sobs, or maybe even shouts of anger. Some buried emotion suddenly resurfaces, and that's not immaturity, it's the beginning of healing. And that's what's happening when someone has a sincere encounter with the Spirit, and it's accompanied by a lot of emotion. It's not immaturity, it's not fanaticism, it's counseling. It's counseling from the Spirit of God. Second thing you need to know is that this woman who was married to one of those pastors, that was her second husband. Her first marriage was to a Greek man, and they had lived together for years in Athens. He was extremely abusive. Their whole marriage, he never called her by her first name. He called her My Little skadula." And so, in the home, he would say, hey, Scadula, come here. In front of his friends, "Scadula, can you get us some drinks? When they went out, he would introduce her in social settings, says, oh, and here's my little Scadula." So she lived that way for years, hugely painful, completely dehumanizing. So even just set spirituality aside for a second, just psychologically speaking, brain plasticity means that you can write new neural pathways into the human brain by repetition. It's the same thing as how a trail gets created in a forest when people take the same route again and again and again until a pathway is worn that trails or pathways are created in the human brain by traveling the same way again and again and again. And so for this woman, repeated abuse in her most intimate relationship had shaped her so deeply that it was even beneath her logical processing. So that at this point, years later, she's remarried to a loving and attentive husband and she still has her guard up. She's still keeping him at a safe distance because another relationship at another time with a different person is informing her present. Her current life is still shaped by a demeaning, undignifying name she was called by someone who was supposed to love her. And so when God put that word in the mouth of a complete stranger, he was doing it for the purpose of healing for recreating in the midst of her own chaos. And the mess that followed was the counseling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God overpowering the grip of pain on this woman's life. You see, the New Testament gift of prophecy, it's an expression of love. Because it's one thing to be told that God loves you and redeems your past. It's another thing to be given God's love and redemption in the most personal way possible, targeted to the most painful moment in your story. And it's one thing to be told no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, God sees you and he loves you. It's quite another thing to have a complete stranger speak right into the most painful secret that you've got buried. That's God's way of saying, I've always seen you, I've always been with you, I've always loved you, and I'm healing every last wound. That's the Holy Spirit traveling the neural pathways of someone's brain to redeem their past and rewrite their future. And that is what Jesus was getting at on the final night of his life, when he said this, all this I've spoken to you while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit's a teacher, but a particular kind of teacher, one without any original material. The Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything I've said to you. Later in the same conversation, Jesus adds this. He will not speak on his own authority. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit is less of a teacher and more of a translator. Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father to the world. The Spirit was given to translate the teachings of Jesus from the head down to the heart, from intellectual understanding to soul-level identity and a new floor for your life that you can build an identity on. The Holy Spirit pushes the teachings of Jesus from the head where they can be understood down into the heart where they can heal and become a new foundation for us to live from. This is what Romans chapter 5 is getting at. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And across the board in church history from Augustine to Anselm to the medieval mystics, the Holy Spirit has been understood as the personified love that exists between the Father and the Son. Jesus made us sons and daughters of God. That is an unchangeable fact based on his grace, not your performance. But in spite of that, most of us feel nearer or further from God based on our recent performance. We feel good before God based on our recent good performance and bad before God based on what we would call our recent bad performance. We can't seem to unwind our emotions that are connected to our performance by reciting an intellectual credo. So how do we actually experience what Jesus taught? How does that go from a logical principle in our heads to the emotional foundation we live from? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Bernard of Clairvaux said this, the kiss of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ten years ago, I stood in front of my family and my closest friends in a dangerously dapper suit and made promises to Kirsten. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. Oh, in sickness and in health, that was in there too. And she made those same promises back to me. On our wedding day, we sealed a covenant. But the experience of that covenant, it's a whole bunch of ordinary moments in the days, weeks, months, and years that followed that day. It's when she shows me affection and when she listens to me empathetically. It's when she smiles and hugs me when I walk in the door after a long trip. It's when she laughs hysterically with me across a dinner table. And it's when I get back home after a long Sunday and she couldn't care less how good or bad I thought the sermon went. She just wants to make sure that I've got a little bit of company that sees me beneath the role that I carry and welcomes me back into my home. That's how I experienced the covenant that we sealed 10 years ago. It's in the ordinary moments of the ordinary life that we're building together. And the same holds in our relationship to God. You see, the Father makes a covenant to Israel and to the world. Then the Son is the bridegroom coming out to meet his bride for her, for her wedding day. The Holy Spirit is the kiss of God the experience of the covenant, the experience of the love sealed for us in Jesus. The Spirit takes biblical rumors and then makes them real to us, right? The scripture teaches that God is Father. The Spirit makes that real to me. The scripture teaches me that God is love. The Spirit makes that real to me. The scripture teaches me that God is running out to meet me, clothe me in royal robes, welcome me to the home that I walked away from before I even knew that there was a home for me to leave, but it's the Spirit that makes that real to me. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love of those who, for those who fear him. But it's the Holy Spirit that is the experience of that love. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, but it's the Holy Spirit that, that is the experience of that forgiveness. Ezekiel gets at this part, too. He's not a one-trick pony. He's got a lot of things to say. Ezekiel 16 says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I give you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. God made a covenant with us. We're used to that theme, but spread the corner of my garment over you is a Hebrew sexual metaphor. It's jarring imagery, written into the middle of the Bible to say, God does not only tell us He loves us, He offers us the experience of that love. And in Hebrew, the word for know or knowledge is yada. And it does not refer to intellectual understanding. That's a very new Western way to think about knowledge. In the Hebrew imagination, something wasn't known until it was understood relationally and experientially. And so yada is a relational experiential kind of knowledge. And that's why the word know is used throughout the Old Testament as a euphemism for sex. Then Adam knew Eve and they conceived and bore a son. Because know was an experiential and relational kind of knowing. The Holy Spirit was given that you may know, that you might experience and relationally know the true life of everything that Jesus taught. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a covenant that can never be broken. It is finished as he said from the cross. But the Holy Spirit is the experience, the life and the affection that reminds you that that covenant is the one that you live in even today. It's pretty good. Brendan Manning says, if I'm not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. So the Spirit assures us of our belovedness and that assurance then frees me to get in touch with the sacredness of others and draw it out of them. So it's not just that the Spirit gives us the experience of our, of our covenant love. The Spirit then fills our ordinary lungs with his ruach, with his breath, his spirit, so that the words we speak can be carriers of healing power. In 1 Corinthians 14, right in the middle of a whole bunch of practical instructions for how to steward the gifts of the Spirit responsibly within a church, in a worship gathering, we read this, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, are you eager for manifestations of the Spirit? Are you longing for miracles and signs and wonders? Then love one another. Because in the kingdom of God, power always serves love, never the other way around. In the early church, they never imitated the miracles of Jesus without equally imitating the sacrificial love of Jesus. They moved toward pain, toward hurts, toward annoyances and grievances and needs in one another. They learned to forgive and to ask for forgiveness, and they saw the worst in each other and then kept on choosing love, because power flows through love. Let's go back to that Skadula story. The setting was in a church prayer meeting. And the inciting incident to the deepest kind of healing, it was one ordinary person awkwardly stammering in a moment of prayer, hey, I know that I don't even know your name, but I'm thinking of this Greek word, and maybe there's a chance God's put it in my mind to say something to you through it. And then as a result, that woman was healed of a wound that was banded up so tight she hadn't even looked at it in years. And that healing then got worked out of her in deeper love she was able to share both with God and with her family. A simple word shared from a relative stranger washed her past and renewed her future. And it could have so easily been ignored. It could have so easily been dismissed by that man as foolish. It so easily could have been shrugged off as, I gotta focus, this is a prayer meeting. But he had the courage to speak, and as it turned out, the breath of God was in his lungs to heal. But the only way that he found that out was by having the boldness to risk a potentially awkward moment and speak up. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God has breathed into you, bringing you alive so that when you speak, God creates so let's just get super practical as we, as we get towards an ending. Three ways the Spirit uh, in us creates through breath. Encouragement, blessing, and prophecy. Okay? They're all connected. First, encouragement. I notice Encouragement is, I notice and name something good in what you do. Hebrews 10 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It's what you do. So to encourage literally means to put or deposit courage in someone. It is to notice the action of someone else and then have the courage to tell them to keep on acting that way, to be bold in expressing that part of themselves. When you did blank, it looked a whole lot like redemption. Keep playing your part in redemption. Did you know that when you encourage someone, you're not just being nice, you're being like God. You're joining the work of God in someone else. So how often do you use your breath for that purpose? Secondly, there's blessing. Blessing is closely related to encouragement, but it's more personal. It's when I notice and name something good in who you are. So in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, uh, the word blessing means to speak the intention of God on someone. It is to view someone through the eyes of God and then say out loud what you're visualizing. And that is deeply personal and it's incredibly powerful. I can remember a couple of years ago, sitting at a dinner at a restaurant with a a good uh, friend, another couple, and Kirsten, just kind of in the middle of the meal as we were trying to decide what to order, said uh, to this guy, I've noticed a quiet, steady integrity about you. And it comes out of you when you talk about your parents, and, and the kind of husband that you are, the kind of friend that you are to us. And when she said that, the atmosphere changed. Because she was speaking something to his identity. I mean, one minute we're deciding on appetizers, and the next someone's getting blessed, and when that happened, the presence of God became noticeable with us there at the dinner table. Why? Because there's divine breath in your lungs. And so when you speak blessing over the life of someone else, you are participating with God in the redemption of that person. And then finally, there's prophecy. And I know that word make a, might make a few of you nervous, so I would just say, relax. It's all over the Bible. It's going to be fine. Prophecy simply means this, it's to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. So you know that feeling you occasionally get when God's inviting you to respond? It's this, it's it's, go up, that invitation's for you, receive prayer today, call her and see how she's doing, turn around, go back, buy him a meal, it's that little nudge. Prophecy is just that thing that you're familiar with turned outward. It's an ear that is maturely tuned to God on behalf of others. And prophecy is always strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, according to 1 Corinthians. It's a source of healing. That's why Moses said to Israel, and Paul later wrote to the Corinthians, I'd like all of you to prophesy. All of you? Yes, because all of you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. All of you now permanently carry what the prophet Ezekiel carried but as a particular person at a particular moment for a particular purpose. That's why this gift is called prophecy because what was extraordinary for one special person before Jesus is now ordinary for all of them after Jesus. It's a new normal because we've been filled by his Spirit. And later on in this teaching series, Christian Dawson's going to bring an entire sermon dedicated to the gift of prophecy. And if you're hungry and you want to get more practical on this, I'm going to lead us through practical ways to pray blessing over one another at a prayer training tomorrow night here at 630. So come, you're invited. In summary, you are filled with the Holy Spirit pouring the teachings of Jesus directly into your heart and the breath of God directly from your mouth. So I want to land here, full circle. You ready for it? That first move of your day, it, it might just be killing you. Reaching for your phone, flooding your thoughts with the unfiltered clutter of your digital world, that's a very shaky foundation to live from. So is there a practice that can put us in touch with the Ruach breathed back into us by Jesus? Yes. Give the Holy Spirit the first word. What if you began to spend the first two minutes of every day listening to the one who pours the love of God directly into our hearts? What if you committed to rewriting your habits so that your instinctive first move was to tune your ear to the Spirit? I wonder how your emotional world would be different. I wonder how your motivations would be different. I'd wonder if you'd know the sort of peace that cannot be taken by the world because it wasn't given by the world. I wonder if you'd be free enough to love other people with the love you've been given and speak to other people that by the power that has filled you, the Holy Spirit's a person to know, not a force to capture, remember? And It is impossible to know the person of the Holy Spirit through the teachings of someone else. You have to take the risk of relationship. So give the Holy Spirit the first word. Very practically, just leave your phone plugged in to the charger. Make yourself a really nice cup of coffee, and then close your eyes, open up your hands, and say, come Holy Spirit, would you speak to me this morning? Just wait two minutes, and trust that whatever enters your imagination next, after that invitation, is from God just a reminder about the way he sees you through his eyes, an invitation to, over, to turn over to him something that you're anxious about, or maybe it's someone else in your life that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Now, do not misunderstand me here. I'm not advocating for a new lifestyle hack. This is not the spiritual equivalent to cycling and kale smoothies. I'm talking to you about tuning your ear to the voice of God who has come closer than your very breath and whose native language is a whisper. I'm talking about giving God a chance to guide the conversation, see where he takes, and then acting on it. Going out that day and encouraging that friend that came up. Paying attention to his presence in the place that came to mind, which was filled with anxiety before. Trusting that you are secure in who he reminded you that you are. I bet if you give God the chance, the Spirit would speak. And I'm talking about two minutes here. So we've created a resource for you. It's up right now at practicingtheway.org demonstrating to practice first this week in your communities and then ongoing daily for the next couple of months as we continue to make our way through this practice. But we believe that the Spirit speaks. And when the Spirit speaks, it takes the teachings of Jesus from the head down into the heart. It's yada, a foundation we can live from.